0: Well, what we claim here week after week, what hopefully I preach week after week, hopefully it's offensive, because that's really what it is. We have the audacity to claim that this book is true. We have the audacity to claim that God actually exists and that he has given us one way to access him, and that is through Jesus Christ. And that is exclusive truth. That is the message of the gospel. And that does not play well in 2021 America, does it not? People hate exclusive truths. People call us arrogant, narrow-minded. People call our claims absurd. And so where does that leave us with regard to the truth of Jesus? Because Jesus is claiming things. And he's claiming things as truth. And I hope and I pray that this morning we're going to be able to pick out three aspects of the truth of Jesus from this passage. So hopefully you're there as Len read for us in Matthew chapter 12. Last week we had a wonderful and completely, totally convicting time talking about our words, Jesus poking around in our hearts about the words that we use and that our choice of words reveals the Condition of our hearts, and um, that's pretty much everybody, right? Because everybody struggles with words, and if they're not words coming out of your mouth, they're words coming out of uh, the, the tops of your thumbs, right? When you're texting someone, or if uh, at, at the ends of your fingertips when you're going on the social medias, or maybe even up here in your head that you're thinking, those all still count as words. So, all of us needs to grow. Need to grow in that area. This week, the Pharisees, after being blasted by Jesus for his blasphemous or their blasphemous words coming from their evil hearts, they respond with a request. And so, part of the aim of preaching church is to communicate the truth of God from His Word. And again, we claim this as truth, and we claim what Jesus is saying as truth. And so, let's look at what 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 the situation is here again. Matthew. 12. Just look at the first verse with me. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And so, scribes and Pharisees maybe scribes would be the legal experts of the law, the Pharisees maybe would be the enforcers of the law. Their whole world revolved around the law, the Old Testament law, and then also the 600-plus other commandments in the Mishnah that they put above and over the law in order to protect the law that no one should ever possibly break that. We've already seen that, right, with the disciples doing work on a Sunday when they were picking grain, and you're not. the commandment says you should do no work on a Sunday, but then they expanded that to say that means X, Y, Z, you can't do this, this, and this. So these guys are the experts in the law, and of course they can't have Jesus going around preaching the things that he is preaching and saying the things that he is saying without being confronted. And so they confront him once again, and they say, hey, Jesus, we would like to see a sign from you, which always strikes me as funny because it's like, you mean more signs than, than the ones I've already been doing? Like blind people have their sight back, deaf people can hear, like I I am healing, I am preaching, I am doing all of these things in front of you. And you still want more signs. And, And the signs are there to point and verify to Jesus as he claims to be. So the Bible says that Jesus claims to be God. No matter what anyone else would tell you, that's what the Bible says. That's why Jesus ended up on the cross, because he claimed to be God. And so those signs then point to the truth of that. When you go around and you do the things and you say the things that Jesus says, that's how you get to say that you are God, because they verify that. They verify his claims. And Jesus has already been doing lots of signs, and the Pharisees continue to reject him, despite all those signs. Signs and wonders and miracles are the validation that Jesus is who he claims to be in scripture. But you Christians believe in miracles? Like this stuff actually happened? You actually believe in that? You silly-minded, simple, narrow-minded Christians. Don't you know that miracles are scientifically impossible that they've been disproven time and time again. And so this whole Bible is just fairy tales and good to be thrown out, right? Because modern science, of course, disproves miracles. And I completely agree. Miracles are completely scientifically impossible. Unless you're talking about Jesus being God. And then he's God, and he can do whatever he wants with his creation. That's the point. If we, exu- if we assume the existence of God, we have to assume that God is therefore able to do miracles. John Frame writes simply, miracles are possible because God exists. That's why. If you're going to assume the existence of God, then you have to say that miracles can happen as well. To go all syllogistic for a minute, if God exists, miracles exist. Jesus Christ claimed to be God Jesus Christ performed miracles. Ergo, logical conclusion, Jesus is God. That's the point of the miracles. That's the point of why all this happens. Jesus points to the miracles directly in John as a verification of his deity. If you jump over to John chapter 10, he speaks about it point blank. In John chapter 10, Verses 37 and 38, Jesus again tangling with the Pharisees and says, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, the miracles, the signs, that you may what? Know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus says these just aren't party tricks here. These things mean something. If you don't believe what I'm saying, believe what I'm doing. I'm doing the miracles. Therefore, that is proof that I am God in the flesh, that I am the Messiah, that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He's saying again that he is God. And so off my soapbox, the Pharisees are looking for a sign. And what they're really saying is, Jesus, okay, like these other tricks you're doing, healing the deaf and the blind, that's cute and all, but like, give us something big here. Like really, really give us a big sign is what they're saying. Really tell us who you are. We want more proof. We want more evidence to back up these claims that you're saying. And Jesus has a strong response for them. Look at verse 39 now that we've, we've set this table. He says, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Okay, so he says, no signs for you. Not going to happen. You are an evil and adulterous generation. Doesn't necessarily mean sexually adulterous. It means spiritually adulterous, right? Remember who he's talking to here. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the religious leaders. They have turned aside from God, and they have turned to themselves and worshiped themselves and worship the law. They are adulterous spiritually. That's why you seek signs. And he says, history will judge you to fail, you, fail to see me as I claim to be. He says, redemptive history is going to bear this out. And he says, I'm not going to play your game. That's not how this is going to work. I'm not just going to do what you want me to do. Because I've already been doing it. And we've got a lot to unpack in this, in this section. So maybe I'll just drop the point up front and we can work through it. Jesus rejects their request for another sign to prove who he is and he says this, the truth of Jesus bows to no one. That's the first thing about the truth of Jesus in this passage. The truth of Jesus bows to no one. You are not going to make me do whatever level of evidence or proof that you think you need in order to accept me because I'm God and the truth of Jesus bows to no one. Imagine the spiritual pride and audacity of the Pharisees and the scribes. Strolling up to Jesus after he's been teaching with authority, he's been doing miracle after miracle in their midst, and they aren't convinced, and they're stroking their epic beards, and their arms are crossed, and they said, nah, still not convinced. We need more. Do something else. And they're talking to God in the flesh. And Jesus slaps them down. He says, they're not gonna, you're not going to get any more signs than what I've been doing, except for the sign of Jonah, he says. And so, so Jonah, if you're thinking about a whale, you're thinking correctly. Our passage talks about that. We don't actually know if it's a whale or if it's just a really giant fish. If you remember Jonah, he was an Old Testament prophet who was sent by God to preach repentance to the people of Nineveh. The only problem with that is that Jonah didn't like that plan. So Jonah went completely in the other direction, disobeyed God, and went as far away from Nineveh as you possibly can, jumped on a ship, and went in the other direction. God doesn't like it when people disobey him, especially his prophets, so he sends a giant storm to overcome the ship as they're in the middle of the ocean. The crew quickly figures out that Jonah is the one, the reason for the storm, and Jonah gets tossed overboard and then subsequently, subsequently swallowed by a giant fish. Once again, silly little Christians, don't you know that giant fish can't swallow people? Don't you know that even if they did, there's so much acid in the stomach of the fish that that man would be just bones in a matter of a day or so but that's what the bible says it's actually really good reason to believe the old traditional interpretation the jewish interpretation as well as many of the church fathers interpretation that jonah actually did die in the whale and jonah was actually brought back to life as yet a miracle I think that's the way that that story actually happened. I'll have to ask Jesus when I get there one day and make sure that's correct. But what happened was that Jonah then gets spit back out, barfed back up by this whale, if you will, right? And now he realizes, man, I should have just gone to Nineveh in the first place. Goes to Nineveh, preaches repentance. And wouldn't you know it, the people of Nineveh actually repent, which just ticks Jonah off all the more which is my favorite part of Jonah, but we're not... I love that. He's just so mad at God. He's just like, really? They repented. I hate them. Why? But that was what God had told him to do. Jesus is the greatest prophet, but he points to Jonah. Jesus preaches repentance to a people that rejected God, and hopefully... They repent. His elect will repent. Those who are in Christ will repent. Jesus is eventually executed and put in the tomb for three days and three nights. Commentators get themselves all wrapped up in there because they're like, well, it's not exactly three days and three nights. We don't know what to do. It's Jewish calendar, calendar days, three days, three nights. You've got to give the author a little bit of play here in this, okay? We're not going to throw out the whole gospel because of the calendar, right? It has to do with how they understood time, and Jesus says, just like Jonah was brought back to life, just like Jonah was spit out of the whale well and finished what God was having him to do, that's what you're going to see. There's going to be no more big sign that you're going to believe until the biggest sign that you see, which will be my resurrection. Until you see me walking out of that grave alive, then, and only then, that's the biggest sign. All these other signs, and they're still going to reject him, of course. But Jesus says, This is why on the the day of judgment, right? The future day, we just sung about it, when Jesus returns, when we all stand before Jesus, he says, On that day of judgment, he goes, The people of Nineveh are gonna rise up and judge you, Pharisees and scribes. Why? The people of Nineveh, they hated the people of Nineveh. They were they were Gentile, they were pagan, they hated God, they hated Israel. But when Jonah preached to them, what? They repented. When Jonah preached the gospel to them about God's redemptive power and turning from their sin and turning to God, they believed it. They repented. What are the Pharisees doing? Rejecting it. Imagine that. The depth, this is actually quite insulting for them. Imagine the depth of that, where where Jesus says, those Ninevites that you hated, that you all learned about in Sunday school, and Jewish Sunday school, they're going to be your witnesses against you because they believed it. And they're going to say that this is true on the day of judgment. And you're still going to be rejecting me. (coughs) Likewise, he says, the queen of the South in the Old Testament She came to see all of Solomon's wisdom. Solomon, of course, one of the greatest, if not the greatest king besides David of Israel. Tremendous kingdom, tremendous riches, tremendous wisdom. And people would come from far and wide to see his kingdom, to see his happy servants, to see all of it and hear his wisdom. And the queen of the south came and what? Saw his wisdom and recognized it as truth. And what are the Pharisees doing? Seeing the wisdom of God and not recognizing as truth. And so same thing, witness number two. Jesus says, guess what? At the day of judgment, the queen of the south, the one who came to see Solomon, who believed the wisdom and the truth of God, is going to be your witness because the truth and the wisdom of God is right in front of you and you are rejecting it. And it's the same truth. And so he calls these two witnesses to say, look, other people believed it and you are still going to reject me. Look at the end of verse 41, or I'm sorry, uh, i be with you in a moment here. In 41 and 42, where he says that something greater than Jonah is here. And then he says something greater than Solomon is here. You see that? He says, those witnesses, the two witnesses that I called, The the, the men of Nineveh and, and the queen of the south, they understood those messages from Jonah, and they understood the truth from Solomon. And I'm greater than both of them. He says, I'm the fulfillment of both of them. Something greater than Jonah is here, and something greater than Solomon is here, and you still reject it. This is all to their shame. This is all to their judgment. This is all for their condemnation. Jonah and Solomon pointed to Jesus, and they're still rejecting him. Solomon was wise, but Jesus says, I am the wisdom of God in the flesh. And you want me to cater to you and give you more signs? Our own biblical redemptive history, he says, will testify against your rejection of me. You refuse to see the truth. You refuse to see the truth of me. And the truth of Jesus bows to no one. If you can't get that, you are mistaken. But the truth of Jesus bows to no one, he says. And you probably know where I'm headed with this. Like the Pharisees, like the scribes, our culture today is evil and adulterous. Our culture is blasphemous. It refuses to see the truth of God. It refuses to believe, no matter how much evidence you would present. I'm continually amazed at the attitude of those who reject the truth of Christianity because there's a stream. Church, we're seeing something. As we continue to progress, they are getting more and more angry. They're getting more and more uh, um, upset and personally offended by the message of the gospel. We face a resistance that's more harsh and insulting. I mean, those who arrogantly, like the Pharisees and the scribes, say to God, prove it. I don't believe in God. There's just not enough evidence for it. If I see enough evidence, then I will believe it. Daring the God of the universe to bow to their idea of what is truth and what is not truth. If you even think for a second that this is true, That you will be held more responsible for attempting to make the God of the universe bow to your own idea of understanding in your fallen three-pound brain. It's unbelievable to me. One Puritan author put it like this. Obstinate unbelievers will not be satisfied with any of God's words or works, but still will crave new ones, as these men, after numbers of signs, still crave yet another sign. If you are here this morning and you reject the truth of Jesus, I don't want to sound overly harsh, and I thank you for coming. I really do. But if you're here and you're rejecting that God exists and you're rejecting the truth of Jesus Christ, please consider this. Isn't it, if he does exist, if there's a chance that he does exist, isn't it unbelievably arrogant to make the God, the creator God almighty of the universe bow to your understanding? It is quite dangerous to hold out your standard of truth and command God to prove it. If this is you, I beg you, think about what you're doing. Think about your stance on this. Hebrews tells us that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we see our, 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 our culture. I posted a blog article the other day of, of why we can believe the, the Bible is true and talking about some of the things we'll be talking about on Wednesday. I got sniffed out, and, and this gentleman uh, cited me as a comedian. I'm a comedian. Maybe I'm funny every once in a while, but he called me a comedian for thinking such things, calling biblical truth defending absurdities and refusing to even consider what I put forth as evidence. Calling the absurdities within the pages of the Bible are contrary to reason and therefore disqualify it from being true. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so, look, I can understand that these things in the Bible are hard to understand. That's why I've devoted my life to teaching it. That's why I've devoted my life to helping people understand it, because there are things in here. I even heard a couple comments this morning, like, interesting passage we got this morning. Where are you going with this one? <laughs> right? We understand that they're hard to understand. But an evil and adulterous generation is calling God Almighty to bow to their own understanding of truth. That's exactly what the Pharisees are doing to Jesus. It's been going on since the first century, and it's completely the wrong perspective, because it makes us the center of the universe and not God. And that's our error. It demotes God to some beggar stuck outside his kingdom waiting to be let in if his truth if his his claims of truth will only be accepted. But church, this is God's world and this is God's word. We're just living in God's world. It's not our world. The Bible's not about us. The Bible's about god and we are living in his world and he is supreme over all his truth is pervasive and if he really does exist what shocker you i'm gonna say he does exist you would you would want me to say that right you do not want to be standing before him after living a life that claimed he didn't that is going to be a very very dangerous place to be on judgment that's what jesus is trying to warn these pharisees about jesus is not going to play the pharisees games And the truth of Jesus bows to no one. That truth is not merely something to agree that could be true, but it is meant to have an effect on us. It's not just an intellectual truth. It's meant to actually have an effect on us to transform us. And Jesus is going to give us an example of that from recent context. In verse uh, 43, look at this. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings back with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. Weird passage, right? But that's why we come to church. That's why it's important to come to church and hear God's word preached and then seek to understand it and apply it. So what is Jesus saying here? He's actually trying to continue to to explain the depth of this truth. Here's the idea. The the truth of Jesus is not just supposed to merely cause us to clean up our lives. There's something that has to happen that's deeper than that. In fact, just trying to clean ourselves up is a half measure. He compares it to a, a demon possessed man. And, and fine, the demon gets cast out. Great. No more demon in the man, right? It leaves the man and it roams through waterless places. I'm not entirely sure why it roams through waterless places. Some guys think that. They look for water. They exist around water. Some guys think that maybe were just, it's, it's an analogy of there was, there was, it was dry, spiritually dry. There was no one else to inhabit. So then they went back, or this demon went back to the original man. So the, the demon is gone, and the problem is solved, right? Wrong. It's not. The demon comes back to the person, finds his house, the whole person cleaned up, swept, put in order. So what then? He goes and finds seven more demons, seven representation of completeness or power or something like that. Seven more demons that come back. They inhabit this nice swept up house that's empty and put in order. And it's worse for this man. It's worse for this man. And he says, so it will be with this evil generation. And that's the second reference Jesus has to this evil generation. What, what is Jesus' point here? So if you just try to clean yourself up by self-improvement, you're not going far enough. The truth of, of the gospel is not just clean yourself up. And in the end, it's actually worse. The gospel is not self-improvement. The gospel is not clean yourself up. I mean, why is it worse for the man in this example? He got the demon cast out. He cleaned up his life. But when the demon came back, there was nothing there. There was nothing in his heart. There was nothing in his soul. There was nothing that replaced the demon. And so thank you for cleaning up this place. Thank you for sweeping it and putting it in order. I'm going to go back and get seven more friends. And now it's going to be worse for you than it was. My friend Charles Spurgeon puts it like this. He says, the devil does in this way... Leave the madly immoral to become decent and orderly. The crafty spirit takes the keys of the house with him, for he means to return. He has quitted occupancy, but he has not given up ownership. Key word there. Spurgeon says there needs to be a change of ownership here, not just house cleaning. The point is that he needed to fill himself. He needed to replace what the demon had left behind with what? Jesus. It's not good enough just to kick the demon out. Jesus needs to come and live instead in place. Jesus needs to take ownership of that man's life, and he didn't do it. He just cleaned it up. Any measures to clean ourselves up without submitting to the truth of Jesus is futile even to the extent of having demons cast out. It doesn't matter. You come to Jesus, you're not going to have to worry about demons, right? Make him the primary resident of your life, and you don't have to worry about that stuff. And I'll put it this way. The truth of Jesus is transformation, not sanitation. The truth of Jesus is transformation, not sanitation. The gospel is not self-help, despite what false preachers would want to tell you. The gospel is self-denial, self-death. It is a transfer of ownership from yourself to God. We turn over, literally, the house keys of our lives to God. It's his house. Our lives are for his glory. Everything in us is then for his purpose. And this is way deeper than what people typically think of Christianity, isn't it? Because people think of Christianity as just like, well, do the right thing, be the nice guy, don't cuss, don't smoke, don't go to see R-rated movies or anything like that, just try to be a good person. That is not biblical Christianity. We've got to remember that. That's behavior modification in our own strength, and it's going to leave us worse than we started. The truth of the gospel is never stop sinning. We don't go to people with that message. That's why we don't picket things with with terrible things on the signs that say just stop being gay or whatever else we're going to say. Go to Jesus. That's the gospel, not just stop sinning. It doesn't matter. It's behavior modification. It's not stop sinning so that God will accept you. It's not clean yourself up so God will think that you're acceptable. The truth of the gospel is that God has made you acceptable through faith in Jesus Christ. And that truth then is what transforms us. Then we then go and do those things. Yes, sorry, bad news. We still have to stop sinning, right? We put sin to death, but we do it because we've been transformed by the gospel. We, not because we want to be a better person. Don't Try and just clean yourself up. If there's somebody in here and they say, well, maybe I just need to be better and Jesus will love me and accept me. Jesus loves and accepts you. He does. Go to him. He will transform you. You can't clean yourself up. It's impossible. That's why we have the cross. You can't clean yourself up. Be transformed by the truth of Jesus. Paul talks about this in one of my favorite quirkiest little verses in Ephesians 4. 28. It's kind of like a riddle. It's in the middle of talking about words that we read last week and all these other things. And, but Ephesians 4, 28, he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. And in that is a little, it's a weird verse, but in that it's, it's, it's a riddle. He says, when is a thief no longer a thief? Not when he stops stealing, but when he actually gets a job and then earns money and buys the things, right? He says a thief is not just a thief because he doesn't steal, right? We don't, want the, we don't want behavior modification. He says a thief is truly no longer a thief, rather when he actually gets a job and starts paying for things with money that he has earned with his own hands. Until Jesus, church, any attempt to clean ourselves up is futile. It's just sanitation and that's not the gospel. The gospel's transformation. This is the essence of the Christian life. We're called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow Jesus. Elsewhere Paul uses the language of putting off, renewing our minds and putting on. Same thing. That's what we're talking about. The truth of Jesus is transformation, not sanitation. And that requires though that we actually obey him. And that's the last part of our passage. Look at Back in Matthew 12, in verse 46, it says, while, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, here are my bro- my mother and my brothers for her whoever, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother it's kind of a strange scene right but in mark's account he sheds a little bit more light on it right let's jump over to mark 3 we see mark's account not a contradictory account, right? Not one that has different details. So the Bible's full of mistakes. So all of the, no, no, no. We're d- different color, different author, different details, right? People tell stories in different ways. Some people leave out parts. Some people add more parts. Mark tells us a little bit in three. Uh, 20. He says, then he went home. The crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. His family has now officially decided that Jesus is nuts, that he's crazy. Maybe some of our family thinks that we're crazy too, or maybe we think some of our family are the crazy ones, right? I'm just going to leave that alone. Jesus isn't crazy. Let's just say that. Jesus is not crazy. But Matthew makes a very important point about who is his true spiritual family, right? Side note, if you're in the ESV, they decided to skip verse 47. Some of you are looking at me with pointy eyebrows right now, wondering where the heck in in Matthew chapter uh, 12, your Bible might go from uh, 46 to 48, Right, And so therefore there's another reason why our Bibles are full of mistakes and we should just throw them right out. Wrong. If you're in CSB, you're looking at this verse and you don't know what the problem is. The translators of the CSB decided to leave it in. The translators of the ESV decided to leave it out. But just so you ESV people can hear this, this wisdom from verse 47, it says this, someone told him, look, your mothers and brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. This is the kind of thing that people who don't know the Bible will take shots at the Bible and say it's full of mistakes. What is actually going on behind the scenes here is that there are two really good manuscripts that don't have that verse in it, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and they don't have that in that. And so everybody said, well, it's that important, maybe we'll leave it out. But we also have a footnote down there that tells you what they did, right? So the Bible doesn't have mistakes we know what's going on. And, and over and above that, how much does this actually affect the truth of what we're doing, whether it's in or whether it's out? Not one bit. It actually just makes more sense, so I think it should be left in. So if someone ever says the Bible has mistakes, you need to ask them, can you name one? And 99% of the time, they're going to come back with something like this that doesn't have anything to do with the core truth of the gospel. We've got to understand that. Now back to our show. Jesus immediately, his family, his mother, his brothers are outside. By the way, perpetual virginity of Mary in the Roman Catholic religion. Jesus had brothers. Don't know what they do with that verse. They try to make the Greek say something else. Jesus or Mary was not a perpetual virgin. She didn't have superpowers. She's very important. We don't pray to her. We don't venerate her. The plain truth is that she had other kids. You do the math, okay? Some people are inside, they're outside going, hey, Jesus, your mom's here. But okay, they tell him this family's outside waiting to speak to him. My question is why aren't they inside? Why aren't they inside hearing him teach? And my other good friend, Matthew Henry, agrees with me. He says Christ's preaching was plain, easy, and familiar, and suited to his hearers. His mother and brethren stood without, desiring to speak to him, when they should have been standing within, desiring to hear him. Frequently, those who are nearest to the means of knowledge and grace are the most negligent. Jesus responds Oh, I'm sorry, my mother and my brothers are outside who are my mothers and brothers? He says, you guys are my mothers and brothers. You you guys are my family. You guys are my spiritual family. And he says, my true spiritual family, my disciples are those that obey me, that hear me and that obey me. And so the third point about the truth of Jesus is this. The truth of Jesus compels obedience. The truth of Jesus compels obedience Notice how, how just being related to Jesus doesn't actually mean that you're a true disciple of Jesus. And just going to church doesn't mean that you're a true disciple of Jesus. We welcome anyone to attend church. We welcome anyone to start to learn about the truth of Jesus. But ultimately, what? It comes down to fruit. The inner transformation should show itself with outside fruit that is growing. Jesus' his immediate family are outside thinking He's nuts. They're waiting to speak to him. They're waiting to set him straight. While Jesus' true disciples, his true spiritual family are where? Inside, listening to him expound the truth. And they're going to apply it. They're going to obey it. So which ones are you? Are you the one outside, waiting to tell Jesus what he's supposed to be doing with your life? Waiting to tell Jesus where he's wrong or, or whatever else he's not doing to your liking? Or are you the disciple sitting at his feet, listening to him teach, and will then go out and put it into practice in obedience? If you are his true disciple, you obey Jesus. The truth of Jesus compels obedience. The Bible is all over this. In John chapter 15, for one, a very, very simple verse in John 15, 14, Jesus says it this way, He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. The ladies have been studying James on Tuesday nights, and Mel has become fond of saying, I want my say to match my do. In James chapter 1, that's where that comes from. I put this passage in your bulletin, starting in verse uh, 22 of James 1. It says, Be doers of the word, and not just hearers, only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, but forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. The truth of Jesus, church, compels obedience. It does us no good even to gather on Sunday mornings and hear this expounded and then walk out the door and forget about it. It's like a man looking in the mirror and forgetting what he looks like. Jesus has some strong words for his family. And indeed, we can also take encouragement for those who have been rejected by their family. Those who have been rejected by their family for being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Those who, like Jesus, your family might think you're nuts for following Jesus. And Jesus says, Rest assured, you are my true spiritual family if you obey me. So take encouragement in that. We are the family of God if we obey Jesus. We all have areas of our lives that God is calling us to obedience in. The great news is, it never stops. The great news is that God is always working on us. The great news is that we're always being sanctified. We always have some place where God is calling us to obedience. So, my question is where is it for you this morning? Where is God calling you to obedience as a disciple of Him? He is calling all of us in our life situations to be a true son or daughter of God in our obedience. All the time. There is no sacred-secular divide, right? We, We think that. I'm in church, so I'm a Christian, and then I go out that door, and I'm not. No, you're a Christian all the time, in every aspect. And so in every aspect, we're called to obedience, whether that's hanging out with friends, working hard at raising kids, or homeschooling, working at our office, at the job site, or from home, or whatever we're doing. Whether you're a student, whether you're a kid, and you're learning, and you're growing, and you're obeying the truth of Jesus. Christianity isn't about the accumulation of intellectual knowledge. It's about obeying. It's about walking in that truth. It's about growing in that truth. I mean, the truth of Jesus has to be understood and enunciated, but it also has to be applied. And so the truth of Jesus compels obedience. In this culture that has grown hostile towards Christianity and the Bible, This culture still arrogantly demands that their level of proof be met for God to exist. Let us take confidence, church, that the truth of Jesus bows to no one. And this doesn't mean that we're arrogant in return, right? We know that. The Bible tells us that. We should be ready to give an answer, to give a a defense, to give an argument, a defense for the reason that, that the hope is in us. But we do so how? With gentleness and respect. We don't have a license to be a jerk in this. When we're tempted to reduce Christianity to rule following, or worse, rule following that we can clean ourselves up enough that God will be happy with us and get him to give us what we want, let us remember that the truth of Jesus is transformation, not sanitation. Because we can never clean ourselves up enough to be acceptable to God. We can't get those two things reversed. Jesus cleans us. We are stained through and through with sin, and we're separated from him. We're spiritually dead. That's why Jesus died on the cross. That's why we have Jesus, because he is our righteousness. Our hope is to repent from our unbelief in sin and trust fully in the work of Jesus and then live it out and obey it, because we also have to remember that the truth of Jesus, if we're going to say the truth, the gospel is true, it's got to transform us. It can't just be something that Is mere intellectual. And from there, we obey. It's life transformation that ends up in obedience. We should not be like the family of Jesus, waiting outside for Jesus to get done with whatever we think he's doing and then say, Jesus, you're not doing it right. And Jesus, this isn't right or however. We don't come to church or care group or Bible study or men's breakfast or whatever to get God to be happy with us, to give us what we want. Church, we have to want Jesus himself. That's what we have to want. Jesus wants our transformation, and Jesus calls us to obedience. But Jesus does call us to stand for those things in a world like the Pharisees and the scribes that will hold him to a standard and arrogantly raise their hand and say, Jesus, prove it. Jesus, do this, and then I will believe you let us rejoice, church, that we serve the true and living God, that he gives us all we need in the truth of Jesus to live lives of fulfillment and joy and worship as we seek to be his disciples and bring others to him. Let's pray that we can do that. Father, this passage, there's much to glean from this passage and and ideally even much more to glean from this passage. Lord, as, as we seek to live this out, in a culture that has rejected you. Father, would you cause us to be transformed through faith? Would you cause us to obey? Would you cause us to be strengthened? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.